Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this series as a way to share my academic conference presentations to a wider audience, but then I expanded the podcast in spring of 2020 to bring you the audio versions of my pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on YouTube. The conversations that I'm going to be having for the upcoming 2020-2021 school year focus not just on the ideas of teaching history during and after the pandemic like the spring series did, but also history-adjacent ideas that we can use to think about making our history teaching more responsive and broad to the world that students are engaging in today. Like in the spring, the conversations on the podcast are unedited conversations, so you might hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer, but the content fundamentally remains the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Pandemic Pedagogy for fall, winter 2020-2021. I just want to flag that because we film this at two separate times, the uh, volume is going to be a lot quieter for the interview. So if this is a comfortable volume for you, <laughs> um, you better turn it up even more because um, this is this is way louder than the sound is for the, um, the conversation. We'll work on that as we move through the series. Thanks for understanding. Hi everyone, Dr. Smith Cotrera here for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. We're continuing pandemic pedagogy today, but as I've mentioned in another video, you know, the fall, there's so many unknowns this fall, and so one of the kind of pandemic pedagogical <laughs> ideas that I think are is really important to be able to snake through all of our practices, uh, pedagogies and this video series is to think more broadly about things like history and and to think more broadly about students in our history class need and sometimes what they need are kind of interdisciplinary connections and other connections to things that are separate from the academics of school so for the pandemic pedagogy series this fall I'm talking to people that aren't just kind of history as traditional history, but also people that do a lot of different things. And today I'm talking with a young adult um, author, which I'm really excited about. So I'm talking with Rob Shapiro, who wrote the book of Sam. Oh, there's Betty, uh, who wrote the book of Sam. It is not me. I've asked him multiple times. He, he definitely says that this is not about me, which is good. It's about um, a boy it's, a, it's a, well he can tell you more about the plot but it's def, it's not about me it's about a boy um and it's such a great novel to like uh introduce to your students right now when they're trying to figure out themselves and they're trying to figure out this like unknown world and like a world that they kind of know but they don't really know and that's why i really loved this now i'm extra excited to be able to talk with rob today because rob and i were best friends in high school <laughs> and so it's so awesome to be able to like bring our worlds back together again to be able to like talk about such a thoughtful novel and such a cool exciting fantasy novel um which is not actually anything that i knew about him when we went to high school together despite me just saying that we were best friends, but I did. Anyway, regardless, but what I did know about him was that I always knew that he was funny and thoughtful, and so the work that he's doing right now just kind of fits right in there. Along, although this is his first novel, uh, Rob is a writer and he has written for uh, TV shows, comedy shows. He wrote for the series DNA, DNA Ace. See, it's so catchy. 
as well as the live action comedy series What Got Did, which was awarded from the Bell Fund. And currently he has been working on the comedy school, which is something that he co-created and it's in production right now. So it's really cool to like be able to talk about the stuff that he's doing, the stuff that he's done and kind of bring this all together to kind of suggest why this is a really good novel to recommend to your students. Um, you know, I'm totally biased because I know him well, but I also don't read a lot of young adult fiction. And so it was such a pleasure to read such a, a great novel. So anyway, let's go over to Rob and, uh, and talk about the book of Sam. Rob, it is so wonderful to talk with you today. I was saying in my little introduction that we have known each other since high school. Um, yeah. And so it's an extra special treat to be able to talk about your book. Um, so before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, before then I just kind of talk about high school a little bit and show you some pictures. Sure, uh, I'm Rob Shapiro. I'm a writer from Toronto, Ontario. I'm the author of the Book of Sam, which is a YA fantasy adventure, uh, which was just recently released by Dundurn Press. Um, I've also written a bit for TV, most recently for uh, DNAce, which for Chorus and Ovana, and I've had a couple other shows in development. Um, the DNA's title is so uh, smart. Yeah. <laughs> Thank when you. I, was, like, I didn't come up with the show. I just wrote on it. I know, but when I was saying in the introduction, I was like, oh, so smart. I see what they did there. <laughs> yeah. The, the main character's name is Ace. Yeah. So smart. Yeah. <laughs> just like the main character in your book is Sam. And so obviously, that's how we do it. The, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I said in my introduction, I was saying to people that, you know, we were like, best friends in grade nine and grade 10. And I, I have evidence to prove it in case people don't, um, people don't believe that. Uh, like this is my favorite picture of the two of us. Yeah. Which I have is me too. as a Spice Girl and you being like, I don't understand what the enthusiasm is about. I mean, I know you were like a Spice Girl fan, but like my own enthusiasm about life. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's like a few years before I'd fill out the, that outfit, you know. <laughs> Oh, no, you don't think this was just, like, your cool, cool guy outfit? That was, I don't know if the khakis were my cool guy outfit. I kind of like it, though, but yeah. it's of the time, let's put it that it, way. It is of the time. Yeah. The 90s. So, so wonderful. Yeah, so, I was also sitting in my introduction, even though we were our really good friends, I, and I knew that you liked writing, I actually didn't know that you uh, were interested in fantasy uh, and it like adventure stories. So maybe yeah. it's like a first way into talking about the Book of Sam, which I loved. And of course, you know that because I have tweeted about it. And um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, maybe you could talk about like about the yeah. plot and about why fantasy, why fantasy adventure. Yeah, so I think the book itself is about a 16 year old teenager named Sam Sollinger, who's kind of bullied at school and he doesn't really fit in at home. He's got, you know, three siblings who are all overachievers. You know, his father's very demanding um, and he spends all his time at his uncle's hobby shop and he has one friend in the entire world named Harper. And then when he realizes that she's gonna leave, she's gonna go on a Paris exchange, he's gonna be left all alone. So the story kind of unfolds as Sam is getting ready to kind of confess his love and finally take that big leap. He opens a portal to hell, she gets taken, and then he decides to go after to go after his only friend. So that's what the book's about. I mean, for me, I've always loved fantasy adventure. I've actually, I mean, I grew up of it, with it. Um, I mean, if you think like the 80s and 90s was like kind of like the golden age of it. I mean, I know a lot of people disagree with that, but you know, you are talking like Spielberg and Lucas and all these like 
big ideas and big movies and big stories and even stuff that I mean some of the stuff might even even been from the 70s but we saw certain stories be adapted into film and you know that's what I was watching at the time whether it was you know never ending story or labyrinth or uh you know something like et even it was always about this idea of you know the world is either not what it seems or there's a bigger better world where like adventure can be had and it was just always something i loved and i think it was probably i started writing the book in 2015 and leading up to that um i'd read so much ya as i always do and i just found that it had kind of stopped being about these like grand adventures and was more about these like brooding teenagers who are you know kind of being oppressed by a government and you know I don't want to specifically say they're all like the Hunger Games which I actually really enjoyed <laughs> but, but like, what you're, like yeah towards. yeah <laughs> yeah like they were just all you know when something like the Hunger Games is so big just like a Harry Potter it opens the floodgates for like similar stories I mean film tv publishing they're all copycat industries you know just like anything but not academia and teaching we are all always unique and full of wonderful ideas <laughs> yeah everything you guys do is original no carbon yeah, every, everything <laughs> yeah um but yeah just thinking like you probably have, like most teachers and professors probably have taught the exact same thing every year for so long well um, i know like history teachers you know when i've spoken to history teachers especially like um you know, first or second year history teachers that go to a new school and the veteran teachers will be like, here's the binder, here's your course. And uh, they're like, yeah. oh, can we do anything new? And like the culture of the school is like, nope, this is, yeah. Yeah, and you wonder why people are so uninformed or get so surprised when something happens in society. It's because like no one has ever learned about it. So, <laughs> you know, it's actually not that surprising when something happens. Um, like fantasy, but, so you wanted to do something yeah. different? So, yes. I mean, I just felt drawn to it. I mean, I've always, I think also just like growing up, it was just very special to me. And I think I felt after reading, it wasn't one specific book, it was just like a series of books, uh, YA novels, that they were just very similar, that I didn't, I don't know, I just felt like something was lost, like there was a gap there. And I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, I kind of set out just to write the book that I would have wanted to have read when I was 13 or 10 or, or whatever. And that's kind of how it came to be. At the same time, I was reading this other novel, like it was just an adult fiction novel, like a horror novel that like represented hell. And it was just like the most boring version of hell. And I just started to realize like hell's really weird because, you know, it's the kind of like a fantasy world that like humans have created for themselves to deal with, you know, their own mortality or, you know, to keep people pious or whatever it might be. And, you know, it was just like, it was always represented the same way. Like maybe, maybe it's only been represented the same way since the 12th century, but you know, it's a long time. So I kind of just, those ideas just kind of married in my head and I started writing it. Um, so it's interesting that you said I wrote the book that I would have wanted to read when I was this age because the Maya Angelou quote, write the book you want to read, um, is one that oh. I had over my screen for the last five years too because I started working on my book in 2015 as well. And, um, and so it's interesting that, that, that like, that's a, a quote that guided you because that is definitely a quote that guided me too despite... Yeah them being such different types of work, but I think it still speaks to 
Um, I still, I, I think it still speaks to the importance of story and narrative and being able to like bring out these elements that you feel like are missing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that quote is like, it's, it's very like precise, but it also, it means whatever it's going to mean to everyone, right? Like it's going to mean something different to everyone because the book you want is different than the book than the person next to you wants, right? So it's going to, it should give birth to all these like wonderful stories. Um, that's why, you know, it's like such a great quote, but I, I mean, I think also like the idea and I, I don't know, I, I feel like especially people who are like new writers or want to make it professionally or young or emerging, whatever you want to call it, you're always trying to write to trends. And I think when you actually like kind of forget about all that stuff is most of it is just not applicable. You start actually writing something you'd want, you're going to actually not just get better at the craft, but you're going to probably end up with something that's easier to sell. Well, I mean, not just, no, I mean, yes, I, like I agree, I, I totally agree with you about writing to trends. And it's funny because again, I'm speaking from a different world with there are so similarities because I'm yeah. thinking of trends, like particular teaching trends and how they can be, how they can burn out really quickly when they're not kind of part of you. And this notion of selling is like obviously different for, yeah. for teachers. But one of the things I hear from that is that like, it becomes more authentic. Like people would want to buy a book that is more authentic, just like right. I think when you are, when you're not teaching towards particular trends, then you allow yourself to have a narrative that your own teaching narrative, for example, that is more yeah. authentic to you. And so it's kind of cool to, again, have that parallel. Yeah. And I think like that, that's, I think that's a really great point. I also think that like, when you start writing what it is you want to read or watch or whatever it might be, like ultimately what you're doing is you're taking the things you love and instead of just like dropping them in as references into your things and you're creating something that's kind of surface and self-referential, you're actually taking the ideas of something and, and baking them into like your ideas. So you're, you're retelling them with your voice as opposed to just creating like facsimiles of like all the same things over and over again. And like, when I speak to trends, I mean, like, obviously in YA, there's been, like, some huge ones over the last 20, 30 years, so it's easy to see where the trends are. I mean, just, you know, give a kid a prophecy, send them off to a school, you know, kind of idea. But I, I think even if you look at, like, I mean, TV's a little different now, I would say, because there's a million streaming services, they're producing everything. I mean, there's obviously trends, but, like, I mean, in movies, every time a low-budget horror movie is successful, you know, every, every Blair Witch gives you a thousand Blair Witches with handheld cameras and found footage or whatever, right? And I, I know it's a bit like of a dated, like, you know, <laughs> reference. And we are dating ourselves with those references. I know. But that was, a great, that was a great movie. And I mentioned it to, yeah. I mentioned it to uh, this course that I'm teaching, a student was doing a research project on horror movies. And I was like, have you seen Blair Witch? Cause like she's 20 or whatever and she's like oh yeah i really like the classics and i was like horrible no <laughs> yeah. classics is like errol flynn it's not <laughs> you know it's not uh it's not that and it's funny too because like you think it's like that was the first real movie to use the internet to market itself right because yeah. it's so cheap and they started a website two years before the movie launched so but now it's like oh it's not really like uh, you know, every movie has a Facebook page, a microsite, whatever it is. So yeah, it was, I mean, Blair Witch was a trend. It is also a classic. People are going to study it despite it being like a formative moment of our uh, high school years. But like that also demonstrates like 
that it, it also demonstrates that kind of reverence to history. So that's why it's kind of yeah. cool that you're saying also like that, you know, hell has been represented very in a very similar way since the 12th century, which you were like, you know, that was a few years ago. <laughs> it was a lot of years ago, right? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to be able to, and that's, I mean, that's really why I thought it would be great for us to talk because for me, that's one of the things that I really liked about your novel in this kind of meta history brain way about how it like, how it interrupts narratives that we're familiar with. Um, right. Although I don't know in your, if you're, if you said in your introduction to the novel about why we're talking about hell, could you maybe <laughs> talk about the hell part? Um, oh, yeah, did I, I forget that? Did. Yeah, I think you may have. I mean, maybe not, but let's do it again. Yeah, so, I mean, Sam opens the portal to a fantastical version of Hell. So the idea was to take, like, a lot of the different parts of fantasy world building and apply them to Hell. So that's, you know, everything from demons and certain, like, locations of Hell that are, we were very used to, whether it's sticks or, you know, certain um, parts of, like, uh, demon mythology. So he goes to Hell, but it's not, it's not, like, just this, you know, place of like you know where you know souls are moaning and there's like a lake of fire the whole idea was that he's actually in this world that is made up of cities and towns and villages and metropolises and it's all connected by different forms of transportation and each place has their different everything from attire to culture so that was the whole idea is to kind of take hell and represent it in this different way. And like, you know, I guess in a fresher way from everything I had seen and to, to update it. And it just stemming from this idea, not that we've always, that hell's always been written about, but thus it has always been written about the same way. So to the point where it's, you know, it's kind of like lost all meaning. Or if hell is just like a Dilbert cartoon, which is something you, is all, you're also not referencing. Yeah. <laughs> Dilbert. Uh, like, like High and Lois next? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the photocopier. But yeah. But I, I loved about this is that you, because of the ways that you, um, because of the ways that you're writing it as a, as a response to this kind of traditional trope of hell. You are rewriting the narrative, but also like Sam in the novel thought that these were stories. He didn't think yeah. that it was a real place. And so as someone that, you know, is interested and in, talked about like post-structuralism and history, I say that we get trapped in our particular stories and we have yeah. to intervene. We have to interrupt. We have to imagine new worlds and a new we. And that's why I really loved the way that kind of notion of story and interrupting story is such a key key element of of the of the plot line but also then a very key plot line of like sam understanding himself yeah and um, i think so like that, yeah yeah i think we don't always give stories credit for how much they shape our perception of everything like yeah. i know for me like the stories i read and the and the movies i watched like they were so influential and one, fostering a love of certain things, including history, always making me curious about the world. Like I, I, so much of what I read and watched took place in like Europe and the UK, and they just were like places that almost became like magical in my mind. Uh, now I know they're not, but you know, they were just like so fascinating <laughs> to me, right? So 
these places, um, they expanded my world. You know, like you're living in, you know, a small corner of Toronto, like all these stories and they were fiction, you know, like I, I recognized I wasn't reading, you know, a textbook or nonfiction. I just knew that where these stories took place and what the characters did, who they interacted with, made me realize that these things do exist in some form in the world, right? So, you know, Sam grows up being told these stories and it's, you know, they're used by his uncle to kind of teach him like life lessons, but to also act as an escape because his, his reality is kind of not going so well for him and he's struggling. But the whole time, like Sam's not realizing that these are actually like historical records. They're, you know, it's nonfiction, right? He, it's just being, as time goes on and these books pass around and circulate, you know, they're treated just as fairy tales. And then the realization that they're real, you know, changes him. It makes him go on this adventure. But at the same time, like at first it's access his guide, right? And like, not to get too spoilery, but at some point he realizes that he can't trust them anymore. So he's on his own because they're a comfort to him, right? Like they're, they're all he knew, right? They're, it's knowledge. But then when he realizes he can only trust himself, the venture kind of takes on a different shape. Yeah, like again, I just, I see so many parallels with what I see the potential for in history education, because if you think, yeah. okay, this is a historical record, it can't be broken, it's the truth, then you don't leave room for trusting yourself and trusting your imagination to be able to take you into different understandings of the past, for example. You know, and I think, um, you know, you know some of my work that really focuses on marginalized histories, anti-racist histories, and yeah. like, you know, there's just not a lot of records written by Black women in the 19th century, for example. Right. And so exactly. if we are just saying that like historical record is historical record, then we don't allow room for those stories to breathe and for students that, that find a lot of um, kinship with with those stories that are excluded to be able to find themselves in that because so much of our life is is webbed and mapped through story and and like you know i know this was not written as a as a, a history book but that's one of the reasons why i i just found so many like parallels between things that i think about and the ways that you kind of explore them in these fictionalized ways with sam coming to understand who he is in the stories and who he has to be to make a story that's better for himself. Like, yeah. A story that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point is he has to write his own legacy. Right. And that's kind of why it's called the book of Sam because the books are the books of hell. And one book in particular that he grew up with called the book of Stolas kind of makes him believe that there's this one demon who's like this incredibly heroic and like, you know, politician and warrior who saved all these people. And if he just finds him, you know, then he can save Harper. Like he can't do it on his own. He has to petition this other demon. So it's kind of like the first leg of his journey is trying to find this demon. Um, and I think that is really, it's timely, right? Because we're having these conversations about like, you know, how do we change history? How do we change how we learn about it? How do we, you know, um, you know, you see all like so many young people today, like, taken to the streets, boycotting stuff. They're so vocal. You know, they're doing so much of the work that, you know, adults are doing or adults should be doing and are not doing. 
And you also just see these conversations around like tearing down a certain statue, renaming something. And so many people just don't know who these people are that things are named after. And like, you know, I know a lot of people who think the argument about renaming a school and a statue is silly. Like, I, I don't agree with that. I think all these things should be renamed because I don't think, I think history belongs in museums and those things are more commemoration and we should be commemorating people for doing the right things or certain things. Like, I understand a lot of this is subjective, but, you know, and I think that like, you know, if someone was to walk down, say like, you know, University Avenue in Toronto, where there's so many statues, no one stops and reads and looks it up who these people are. You just take, you just Dude, take it at face value. I do. <laughs> you do. But you I'm... write the Wikipedia pages as you walk down. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, but, you know, we don't know what they are. And like you, and no one wants to hear that this person, you know, prevented slavery from being abolished. And this person did this thing and you know and there's so much there that like people I always feel like people just don't want to face the reality of history um and you know I think how it parallels the story is Sam has no choice to because if he's going to survive this adventure he has to recognize that these books were written by the victors or they were fabricated or it's just people telling a story you know to use history as like a manipulation tool and he has to break away from what he knows and you know become someone else and, and, and understand something differently in order to, you know, continue on. So I'm glad that you brought up Stolas because that's who I want to talk about next in like kind of a big metaphor way. Because one of the quotes that I love um, when you had said like, hell is an intersection of a hundred thousand worlds. And, you know. <laughs> Do you want me to list them? Yes, please do so. <laughs> There'll be a test Number for one. listening after. <laughs> there's Hellville, then there's Helltown. No. Is, it, is Hellville <laughs> similar to Whoville? It's just no. like the French win one? No, but it's, it's similar to Cleveland. <laughs> First place that popped in my head, I'm sure it's a, lo it's a lovely place. I'm sure it's a lovely place. No offense <laughs> to all the people watching in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, nobody, um, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that's maybe that's the problem yeah um so like you know i don't know what's happening on your side of toronto but since march it is it's been kind of a hellish world here yeah. uh, on this side of toronto and the anxiety of this moment has really compounded and one of the things that we talked so much about in the early pandemic pedagogy videos is like the layers of stress and the layers of structures yeah. that are breaking or that are demonstrating that they were never really whole to begin with. And so like, if we were to take that quote, which I love, maybe we could say that this moment is an intersection of a hundred worlds, none of which worked, that feels very hellish. And with the American election coming up, like, it just does not feel like a comfortable, safe place, a place that you know, especially for teachers to be able to lead students in a positive yeah. future together. Um, do you just want to talk about hell as the state of today's world? Like, can you comment about like why why this novel right now would be really great for somebody, you know, a fifteen year old or a thirteen year old to pick yeah. up when they're trying to navigate like adults' anxieties, but also the fact yeah. that the future is so much more unknown than maybe ever before. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many factors and variables. I do not envy young people. I think they are in like 
a really tough position, not even, not solely with what's happening in the world right now, but I think a lot is being asked of them and they're, the world is changing at a rate that it just never has, and, you know, and it's, it's everything, right? From technology to politics to, you know, your daily conveniences, right? Like things are just shifting and I mean, they, they'll, what they're experiencing going, heading back into school is, you know, I can imagine it being really tough. I think what's interesting now, and I think when you're kind of building a fantasy world, which, you know, it, it can be really hard to do. Like you're starting with nothing. And, and, you know, for me, it was like just building it in my head, like part, part by part and trying to make each part unique. And like, it does feel now more than ever that the world is just like so small, like it's a hundred thousand worlds, millions, like whether cities and towns and cultures and, you know, different ways of living and, but it feels so small and so connected from like, like the way news travels to something that happens in Beirut, like it feels very immediate. And I think like that is a new sensation. Um, and I think the response is like, you know, when something happens um, with Jacob Blake, for instance, what happened a few days ago, and then things like they mobilize so quickly from protests to what happened in the NBA and the WNBA, like, and them leading, you know, the sports strike, like it happens so instantaneously because the world in many ways is so small, right? And it's not just all these different worlds, like, kind of existing and, you know, making, you know, you know, filling out a map to the edges, like what it is now is like, it is all these worlds intersecting. And you have people like relief funds for something like, you know, um, a natural disaster in the nineties, the way you would respond to it is so much different than what you would do today. I'm not even just talking like, you know, sending good thoughts on social media, like the resources and everything are so different right? Like if everything just feels like globalized in a sense, right? So it, it does feel like the world is just intersecting at like millions of different points. And, you know, when, like you didn't say this directly, but kind of indirectly that it's happening so fast that it's hard for us to think about in process. And I think that, I mean, yeah. it's hard for me and you know, I'm an adult, um, and then I don't have like little children running around me that I have to process for them. And so do you have any advice as a writer about how to be able to allow yourself to kind of take a step back to allow for kind of imagining, allow for writing, yeah. uh, allow for allowing you to help build the worlds that help help you process the world outside to like build those inner worlds inside. Yeah. I think writing is actually really good for that. Like, even if you don't want to be a writer, I mean, it's a great hobby um, in terms of processing a feeling, processing something you don't understand, trying to make sense of something. Um, I think what looks like just look specifically at like fantasy writing, for instance, like, rarely does fantasy come out of thin air, right? Like, you know, if, right. even if it's birthed in someone's imagination, I mean, you know, not to get like too deep into it, but I mean, you can look at Lord of the Rings and see the connection to, to industrialization, a world war, right? Like it's all there. So I think it is a great way to, you know, kind of look at something from a different angle because you're putting it through a lens of fantasy you're taking something thematically that's happening in the world, whether it's political or, you know, the pandemic, 
And then you're kind of creating characters that act as proxies to you. So characters that you can kind of um, live through the experience, you know, through their eyes, through their actions. So it does in some way give you that confidence to like, you know, continue to deal with it, even though it does feel very stressful. But it's also like, I don't know, there's something gratifying about it. Like fiction is so karmic, right? In the sense that like, you can write the ending any way you want it to be. Um, and you know, I think writers, and I know like you write different stuff in academia, but like, you know, you probably don't get to play with the ending as much, but as writers, we always want to stick the landing, right? Because that's what everyone remembers, but also like you want to, you feel some kind of, you know, it, it, it's your way of hoping you stick the landing in reality, right? So like you want your characters, you know, you want Peter Parker, Spider-Man to survive you know, adolescence and continue to be adult Spider-Man because you want to survive adolescence and you want Katniss to survive the Humburger games because you want to see yourself get out of poverty and give your community more, right? So like we see ourselves through these characters and fantasy worlds when done right are so great at capturing that. And in this weird way, giving you the confidence to like deal with what you're going to, what you are dealing with or what you're going to deal with. It's, I called it like recently, I wrote something for uh, Dundurn who published the book and just about how like fantasy writing is sleight of hand in a sense, right? Because you pull people into this fantasy mm -hmm. world, but really you're just trying to help them, yourself, but really like ideally a reader to, you know, to, to feel, the, feel confident about going, you know, into their own world and dealing with their own reality and, and overcoming it. Yeah, like I certainly, um... I mean, sort like with analysis, for example, you certainly can have different endings in academic work. But, you know, one of the things I really advocate for in history education is, is things like historical empathy, creative nonfiction, um, digital humanities, which allows for a lot more like creativity. And when I was talking yeah. with um, Julian Chambliss, Dr. Julian Chambliss for the pandemic pedagogy series in June, he was talking about like Afrofuturisms and how Afrofuturisms and digital humanities really allow you to rewrite particular stories and to turn like the the victims into the victors and what would right. that look like. And I think people can be really afraid of that, but that's just that's so exciting because I think that's where the potential to hear and see new stories is. And yeah. I think I think that's needed more than ever that we need to provide that space to to be able to imagine, uh, well, I mean, you know, my book is imagining a new we, but like to be able to imagine different histories that include the future that we want. Right, and yeah. this isn't, it isn't fantasy writing because it can still be grounded in historical material, but to be able to draw from other genres like fantasy, yeah. like adventure, um, I think is really powerful. So yeah, I think you. that's really cool. Actually, it's funny, like as you were speaking, it's kind of made me realize that like so much history because it's, I wouldn't say it's fantasy, but it's written by someone who's obviously trying to convey a certain, you know, a certain point of history, trying to, yeah you know, laid the foundation for what future people will think when they read back and they look back on something. And in a sense, like, it's not a historical record as we believe them to be. Um, so it, it is interesting in the sense that like, yeah, you can rewrite history in a truth-telling way. And then at the same time, you are 
you know, kind of rewriting the future. I know that sounds weird, but like, I feel like that's kind of just what I was thinking as you were saying it. It's, it's, it's really interesting how, how they're like tied together. Yeah, because I think that the more people detach history, not the past, yeah. but history yeah. from fantasy, the more problematic it can get, right? Yeah. It's, and I, I don't mean all history, I mean like the grand narratives, right? That we, that, that we, that, that inform so much of our world and that students instinctively know, especially so many students who are marginalized, who are racialized, um, instinctively know don't include them. And so those grand narratives, those like textbook narratives are a form of fantasy. And yeah. like an example that I, you know, that I talk about a lot is like, we never talk about like, the women that were around doing cooking and cleaning while Johnny McDonald was a father of confederation. Like that's a fantasy that these like men stood alone, for example, that there wasn't like yeah. care work surrounded by their lives all the time. And so when Crazy, we don't yeah. recognize the ways that those really common narratives are a particular fantasy and, and Joan Scott, who's a feminist geographer, and historiographer calls a fantasy echo, the the more problematic it is to detach ourselves from them, you know? Yeah, and I think like partly is history is often written by one type of person mm -hmm. who is not going to look, you know, it's a very like myopic viewpoint, so they're not gonna look around them. So when they're talking about like Johnny McDonald, they're never thinking about the people around Johnny McDonald, mm -hmm. or they're so closely tying Johnny McDonald to his achievement that it doesn't leave any room for criticism or to realize that, you know, Johnny McDonald maybe wasn't the person we thought he was, you know? Well, and that the achievement, that the achievement is distilled down, right? Like yeah. we're going to ignore the parts of that achievement that <laughs> literally tried to codify a white nation, you know, yeah. like, um, and we just focus on the nation part. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You just, you distill it down until it's like a very digestible story that can, you know, be repeated and everyone gets to be like, oh, well, you work hard to be like Johnny McDonald. You know, like that's just what it becomes, right? <laughs> oh, that's, that's an ambition and a half. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, like, you know, we, people talk about like folklore as if it's like, oh, well, here's the story of, you know, Paul Bunyan or whatever. It's all meant to be these parables as if it's like almost his, like historical. Yeah. And just to like become this, you know, this something to inspire people. And that's almost what history becomes. But to, for history to be inspirational, often, you know, you have to look at the people who are doing the actual work who are not written about. Mm -hmm. If you're going to focus on one person who was written about, usually you have to really like sand them down of all their, you know. All their, yeah. Their terribleness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Bunyan is like a real, <laughs> is like, is like a, a real good contemporary Canadian example. Like, thanks yeah, thanks. Yeah, it just came a hot off the presses. <laughs> yeah. It's like that and Blair Witch. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't um, know. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to, like, be able to talk yeah. about the parallels that I saw in this novel, and I really enjoyed it. And it's really cool to be able to, because, like, this was a great conversation, and, 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me because I do know you, but that element of like not realizing that you like fantasy as I was yeah. saying, um, like it's kind of cool to see how it all comes together. So this book is now out, Dundurn Press. Do you want to tell people where they can get it? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really available just about anywhere. I mean, Indigo, Amazon, you can order it. If uh, there's bookstores that are open, you can, you know, actually go in and get it. Um, I would always recommend they checking out your local bookstore. They can definitely use some help. So, you know, you can get it at most of them. Um, you can also order it from most local bookstores, but you know, generally it is available wherever books are sold. Does it feel good to say that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It always feels weird to be honest, but. Yeah, but I mean, so congratulations on the book. Thank you. Um, yeah. Before we go, we sign off. I feel like we need to get to the most important question, which is, now with 20 years of distance what is your favorite spice girl song spice girl song yeah oh i thought you were gonna say spice girl no. um i don't feel like i don't yeah <laughs> do you that's not a really good know, question do you not know their disc discography like off the top of your head honestly i can only think of like two right now which is <laughs> wannabe was yeah. that what the, it was called yeah yeah do you want to say i can't even Think of the tune right now okay. uh and then to become one is that what it's called hey, yeah that was a big hit it, it was a big hit and i'm missing a big one though aren't i well you're missing like spice up your life spice up your life yeah yeah um i actually like all of them i do want to talk about spice world just for a minute <laughs> okay i do also just want to say that uh, you and I, along with a couple of our other friends, went to the opening night of Spice Girl. Yeah. It was June 16th, 1996. It's okay. I'm totally a sane person. <laughs> and um, I remember <laughs> someone was like, I do not want to sit beside her for this. And you were like, oh, great. So I'm just going to have her squealing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I actually, I do remember it. Um, Okay, here's the thing. I listen to like a lot of like bad movie podcasts and they always talk about like a lot of the same movies that are kind of like, you know, tossed about as like, just like bad movies, you know, critically, financially, whatever. They never talk about Spice World. Like every week when I get a notification saying, you know, there's a new episode of this, I could be wrong. Maybe I haven't gone into their back catalog, but I'm always like, why is they never do Spice World? Like I always hope I want a Spice World episode. It's so good. So then I started thinking, like, maybe it's not as bad as people thought. I mean, it had Richard E. Grant, who's a really good actor. It had the Spice Girls. They're people. And so, I, I, like, I always wonder, as every week passes that, like, episodes of this, of, from these shows don't delve into Spice World, I start to think, like, maybe people were just wrong about it. Maybe I was wrong about it. I actually kind of enjoyed it, to be honest, but, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, can I tell do, you if it's good. I do remember you not hating it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, so it's actually, well, at least it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for like the most cameos, which is interesting. Because no like way. Elton John did a cameo, Bob Hoskins yeah. was in the movie. Like, you know what I remember? I like how Bob, <laughs> Elton John and Bob Hoskins. Uh, you know what I do remember from the experience of going to see that with you? There's a scene where they're like all working in a restaurant and it's kind of like, let's form a band. It's kind of when they decide. Yeah. And you leaned over to me and you said, they all actually answered an ad. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Like, I'm actually enjoying, you know, trying to get into this. You have to like wreck it for me. That was 
Like, what did you want a montage where they all individually call like from a payphone in <laughs> in London? Like, hi, I called about your ad in the paper. My name's Ginger. Like, what do you? As big of a fan that I was, I was like, we need to interrupt this particular name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. the actor, there was a like the actor that was like the coffee shop owner, and I've seen him in a couple other things, and I was like, no, dude, you were just the Spice Girls cafe owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you no one stops him on the street to say that. I would. You would, but especially it sounds like they're a bit of a character actor. That's probably not what people pull out. No. Well, we could probably just like do a whole thing of us watching a movie and talking about it. And we could do that podcast, but rather than like bad movies, it'd be like underrated great movies of 1996. I I totally agree. I totally agree. I was actually, I was planning, if you weren't going to mention the Spice Girls, I, I was planning on just bringing up Spice World just to like, because this thought has been in my head now for a few months. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I mean, it like knew what it was doing. It was always going to like poke fun at itself. It, yeah, it was, did not take itself seriously. And the people that have called it a bad movie, which has apparently been new for the last 20 years, like didn't see that they were like, no, you know, this, this is just what it is. That's like, what's wrong with that? You get, you pay 10 bucks, 850 maybe in 96. Yeah. And you just get like two hours of enjoyment. Yeah, it was good. I know, I agree, I agree. Um, I feel like I need to like provide some context about why we're talking about Spice Girls so much. So when we were in high school, it was like, there was just like a couple girls, which which I, I was one, but it was like mainly a group of boys. And so I think I just like really like the fact that there were these like other girls in my orbit totally yeah. so i um so that's why robbie and i have such a foundational element of our friendship is yeah girl group from the 90s yeah and i actually have always felt and there's some like you know they fall a bit into like stereotypes and you know baby spice was a always bit. a bit, a bit <laughs> we <laughs> they, were, they were union jack dresses and yeah anyway but, you know, they actually weren't bad role models. Like, there's actually some interesting stuff there that they did. And I don't know. I actually, like, I, I think they have, like, a, a cool place in, like, pop culture. I remember it was, like, a grade 12, I don't know, social science class. And we had to talk about, like, the most defining moment <laughs> of the 20th century. Oh, no. <laughs> Someone was, like, we, the Berlin Wall. And I was, like the Spice Girls, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> but I think that it, they really brought in a different, like, wave of feminist discussion. I think they really changed pop culture. Like, I was, like, Spice Girls, which was this, like, high-level pop, which then, like, came Britney Spears and the other boy bands, and it really changed music. And I think that it really, like, shifted... I think it was, I think they were a group that really helped shift the culture in the late 90s. Um, so, I mean, sure, the Berlin Wall, but also yeah. Spice Girls. I agree. I agree. When Baby Spice said, Gorbachev, you tear down that wall. I don't know, it was Gorbachev, <laughs> who, was, who was in power. It was the first guy that popped in my head. But I actually do agree with you. I think that, like, people don't always give them credit for what they stood for. And, like, I don't know what was borrowed, what was genuine, what was fed to them, whatever. But, like, they did their thing and like there was definitely people who like needed that who gravitated towards them they definitely filled a void that was left like in pop culture and music because it was just at the time there was nothing like them right 
No, there wasn't. I think it's cool. I don't know. I th listen, I still think about them. How many bands from like the last 20 years do, do I think about? Maybe four. <laughs> Spice Girls, Matchbox 20. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, Although, oh my God, can I, we like, people are either going to love this or they have definitely stopped watching. Yeah. But I remember you and I went and we hung out at the chapters at in Thornhill and we looked at this book. I don't know if you remember this day. We looked at a book of like weird Japanese inventions. No. And then we walked, so it was like hilarious. Like I was like peeing myself laughing. We like, it was just hilarious. And then we walked to my house cause my house wasn't that far. Yeah, I remember and I, that. I, we were going to like use this laugh desk to write something related to that book. And I was like, no, I never use it for these things. And you're like, do you swear on the Spice Girls? And I was like, yeah, I'll swear on the Spice Girls. And the next day Jerry left. That's <laughs> 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 like, no. <laughs> I, I actually, I, have, I, I never knew that. That's I really have this funny. like weird intersectional memory of all of these different things. Um, and then I just think that, that I, I single-handedly brought it down. Um, yeah. I mean, you have a great icebreaker if you ever meet them. You're like, I, I'm the downfall. I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, you know what? I don't know what Baby Spice is doing, but I feel like they've all done really well. I mean, they're all like, you know, it's not like the industry, you know spit them out like I feel like they've all like they're out there they're performing and singing and making a great living I mean I don't know I give them a lot of credit yeah they I do think that they were like I do think that they there are I mean they're no Lindsay Lohan I was looking at a picture of her today and I was like why does she look like a 60 year old washed up movie star and because she's 36 so yeah no and it's it's like that's what the industry does for you. And, yeah. you know, I guess they were probably, I mean, they were in their twenties, right? Like they were adults. Yeah, they were. So it's a little different, but I think that it's really hard to have like any type of sustained su success. Yeah, no, I agree. And they all, I mean, Mel B's had a rocky few years. Maybe we'll blame it on Eddie Murphy. Maybe not. Has she? She, was, she was on America's Got Talent, right? Yeah. And she, she had a child with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, that I knew. Um, but then she, in her next relationship, um, it, it was abusive. And so, well, I don't know, she's, she's had a few problems, but oh, like yeah, not, know. you know, again, not, it's okay. It's okay. I don't, I, I don't follow them closely anymore. <laughs> but you're, yeah, but Lindsay Lohan is like your top rated Google search. For oh, no, it is. I get Google alerts like every once, once an hour. Wow. Just, just check it up on her. <laughs> <laughs> just, someone's got it. Yeah. Um, Rob, this was super fun. Yeah, it's a lot um, of fun. And uh, yes, we'll just do a Spice Girl little episode of the show. I think that's For more sure. than appropriate, especially during a pandemic and like social movements and the decline of democracy in the United States. Spice World, <laughs> I think, seems like the best fit. <laughs> Yeah. Um, thank you so much for talking about Book of Sam. Thank you for writing such a great novel. And thanks for agreeing to participate in this little series, despite not like realizing how many intersections we've been able to make with history teaching. So thank you again. This is wonderful. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. All right. See ya. Bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. 
Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.